as she does that. Good good morning, church. How y'all doing? I don't know if that's a a great introduction. You're all like, who is this woman? She's going to do what to me? But anyway, as you can tell, um, I'm not from Orange County or North America. If you're wondering, I'm a little bit further south than y'all. And um, if you kind of keep flying about 20 hours, I come from Sydney, Australia. So anyone been to Sydney? Wow, quite a lot of anyone want to come to Sydney? Whole church, hi. Hey, we could come. I'm part of the teaching team um, of a church in Sydney, Australia called Hillsong Church. I don't know, has anyone heard of Hillsong Church? Okay. And you're all excited because I've got blonde hair and I'm from Hillsong and you think I'm going to break out into shout to the Lord, but you would all cry to the Lord this Sunday morning, so it's not going to happen. But um, I'm very privileged. I love your church and I, I love and very I'm very honoured to be here this morning. I'm here with the single most ravishing piece of masculine flesh on planet Earth, which would be my husband. So, honey, can you stand up? This is my husband, Nick, everyone. And, um, you know, when Pastor Kenton and Laurie asked me to come, I was, I was, I was uh, just considered it a great honour and privilege to share a little bit of my story with you and to continue on in the series that um, Pastor Kenton's already started about living boldly. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm from Australia, so our seasons are a little bit back to front, and I love this whole time. We, we kind of don't have um, Halloween or Harvest Festivals in Australia, so it's quite a novelty to see all the pumpkins here. We, um, we have pumpkin soup. You do pumpkin pie. It's a little bit unusual, but that's okay. I'm from the, the place where we speak the Queen's English, like we speak very dignified. We say awesome. And um, so after three, I just want you to say it like an Australian awesome. One, two, three. Wow, okay, just I gonna do that again. It sounds very British. One, two, three. Beautiful. Now after three, I want you to say it like an American. Ready? One, two, three. Just saying. Okay, so there's just this thing about awesome versus awesome. Anyway, and uh, just joking on a Sunday morning, can you laugh in church? And anyway, so we're coming into this winter season, which my girls are really happy about because last February we kind of took up skiing and where I'm from you don't really see snow very much but we went to Vail in Colorado to ski with five other American families it was right during the Vancouver Winter Olympics and so my girls were all excited and I would watch the Olympics at night and then I'd get so motivated in the day that I would get off the chairlift and think I'm representing Australia because there was all these Americans there and I'm like I'm going to represent Australia even though I didn't know how to ski and in my church we have this kind of thing called the pump factor, which means you can surround yourself with people that will pump you up to do things that you are unable to do and have zero ability to do, but with the right motivation, you will try to, you know, high dive off off, off some big ski slope. So I was with Nick and I was doing my best and um, felt really excited that I had done this really, really good run. And I turned around to my husband and I said, babe, if you were with the boys right now, you wouldn't be skiing any quicker, would you? And, um, you know, if you're a man in this room this morning and you're married and you want to stay married or you're single and you want to one day get married and stay married, if your wife ever asks you a loaded question, like, would you be doing anything better with anybody else? Um, the, the right answer in that moment would always to be say, you know, no, babe. The pinnacle of my ski experience is on this green flat slope with you. That is the highlight of my life. Like, if you were wanting any action that night, that's what you'd say. But anyway, so I knew the nine o'clocks would be awake. Anyway, and then so I... I, um, my husband goes, no, babe, you know what? If I was with the guys, I'd be skiing quicker. Now, this personality type doesn't want to hear you'd be doing anything better with anyone else. So I, famous last words, looked over my shoulder, 
turned around to my husband and went, well, babe, eat my snow. And um, down I went. And about 20 seconds later, I knew I was in serious trouble on my second somersault that was not intentional. As my head's facing the sky, one ski went flying off and the other one didn't. And in midair, I literally heard the loudest pop, pop, pop that you've ever heard. And I snapped my ACL, I tore my MCL, tore my meniscus and fractured my knee. I did the whole day deal. I'm lying there. They had to get the ski patrol. You know, they put you in one of those little coffins and they take you down the mountain and everyone's like, who's that nerd? And you're like, that's me. And um, anyway, why do I tell you all that story? <laughs> that I'm still traumatized, that's why. But anyway, so part of that thing is my mother, I come from a very staunch Greek uh, Greek Orthodox family, you know, Greeks are, Greeks are fatalists. It does not matter how bad things are, they can always get worse. And so my mother for years would be like, Christina, don't do this. Don't go skiing. You might have an accident. You know, be careful with the girls. And so when I came, flew home to Australia to have knee surgery, my mother said to me, Christina, I'm so glad you had that accident because I told you that if you went skiing, you would end up having an accident. That's Greek logic. But essentially, I come from a family that was quite risk averse. I, can't, I grew up in a nation that in fact never encouraged you to take great risks. Now, we're the land, as your pastor reminded me yesterday, of convicts and criminals, but we were very much encouraged. Don't step out of the boat. Don't take any risks. Stay safe. In fact, in our society, these sayings were very common in my home, in our society. And I'll start, and if you know, you can finish. Things like, you can't have your cake, and if it's too good to be true, if it can go wrong, Everything that goes up, look before you, keep both feet on there, don't count your chickens. So you all had a negative Greek mother as well, obviously. <laughs> but essentially what we were taught is stay safe, stay predictable, don't take any risks. Who do you think you are? Don't do anything out of the boat. Now that's okay if the world wants to live like that. But when that kind of thinking begins to permeate the church of Jesus Christ, it's extremely dangerous because there is nothing safe about being alive. When we begin to equate the blessed life with the safe life, then there's something fundamentally wrong. God is an infinite God. He has created us as finite beings and woven into the very fabric of our finiteness is this whole concept of risk. Living is risky. You and I cannot control when an earthquake's going to happen or when a tsunami's going to happen. You and I can't control what happens on the stock market. We don't really know what's going to happen tomorrow. I mean, living, just being alive and going through our daily life is extremely risky. Nick and I fly. We um, are full-time missionaries out of our church, and we fly about 300,000 miles a year to do what we do across the earth. Now, so flying is a fundamental part of our life. Well, recently we were flying from... Um, Chicago to Raleigh, North Carolina. And, you know, the plane took off. It got up there above the clouds where you kind of want it to be. And so it was up there. And after about five minutes, the captain comes over the loudspeaker. He says, ladies and gentlemen, there is no need to panic. <laughs> of which I'm thinking, I wasn't panicking <laughs> until you just said that. And then literally he said, we're having problems with the landing gear. We can't get it up. We don't know what's still attached we're not going to make it to Raleigh, so we're going to turn around and try to land in Chicago. 
Now, at 35,000 feet, church, there's certain words you never want to hear in the same sentence. The word try and land are two of those words you don't want in the same sentence. So anyway, at that second, literally, the spirit of atheism left the airplane. And um, from the front to the back... (laughs) People were crying out. I mean, Muhammad, Allah, Buddha, Jesus, Mary, the donkey. I mean, they were going for it. It was awesome. (laughs) People were crying out, hoping there was something. But you know what I realized that day, church? I realized that flying is very risky. I went skiing in Vail in February last year. A ski vacation. You know what I realized last February? That going on vacation is risky. You know, the last couple of years, Nick and I have been to several nations around the world where within hours of leaving and having um, evangelistic meetings or crusades, there have been major terrorist attacks. We were in Jakarta, Indonesia, the night that they bombed the Australian embassy and the building next door, a nine-story building next door, was bombed totally to the ground. That building was bombed at 1.38 a.m. Nick and I left that building at 11 p.m., two hours and 38 minutes before. We're at Jakarta Airport. And it's quite a disconcerting feeling to know that you were the last person that did a Christian meeting in a building and then that building's bombed to the ground two hours later. We run an anti-human trafficking initiative based in Eastern Europe in Thessaloniki in Greece. And, um, you know, by the time I got my girls on the aeroplane in Thessaloniki and we landed in Heathrow and we're watching the monitors at Heathrow Airport with all of the riots happening in Greece and the petrol bombings, where we have our legal center, our shelter, our our transition home. Major riots, major um, bomb attacks, right there in the center of the city, right where we had been just, just hours before. Do you know the thing that I'm discovering, church, is that being an evangelist in the 21st century is incredibly risky. There's nothing safe about it. You know, when I was nine years old, I, I fell in love for the first time with a little Mauritian boy in my third grade, and um, his name is Patrick. And, you know, Patrick and I had never spoken, but for six months I used to look at him across the classroom and my heart would beat. So eventually one lunchtime I went up to him and I went, Patrick, you love me, don't you? And he didn't know what to do, so he just kind of nodded his head. And, um, and then I said to him, Patrick, will you go with me? And what that means in Australia, when you're nine years old in third grade and you're in love with a little boy and you ask him to go with you, what that means is you're not going anywhere with this person, but you are exclusively going nowhere with this one person. And um, so Patrick and I went nowhere together for two whole weeks. And then Patrick dumped me. I know, it's sad, to go nowhere with my best friend, Kathy. But you know what my little nine-year-old heart discovered about love? That love is risky. Are you catching on this morning? When I was 13, I came home, and this was front-page news in the newspapers in the state where I live in Australia, because um, it became what later on a kidnapping charge. My aunt, my dad's sister, came home to find that her house had been emptied of all of their belongings, and her husband of 25 years had taken their five-year-old daughter, all their belongings, and moved into state to another state in Australia. And um, he'd moved with, in with her best friend, with whom he'd been having an affair for 18 of the 25 years that they were married. And at 13 years old church, I discovered that marriage is risky. You can't avoid risk if you try. When I was 19, I was working and my next door neighbors came in to my office where I was to tell me that my father had died just about half an hour before in my mother's arms. We just worked minutes away from my home. I didn't really believe it. I jumped in the car, raced home came to my front yard, saw an ambulance there, walked into the lounge room, 
and saw my father lying. The first dead body I'd ever seen in my life was the body of my father. And although I could still kind of smell his aftershave, he felt so warm. I could still taste his sweat when I bent down to kiss him. I could smell, taste, touch, see. But something was very evidently missing. And at 19 years old, I discovered in a very profound and permanent way that life is terminal and life is risky. That you cannot avoid risk if you try. Can't avoid death if you try. In the words of George Bernard Shaw, he put it beautifully. He said, death is the ultimate statistic. One out of one will die. I bet you feel so encouraged you came to church this morning. And so the point is, where am I going with all of this? That some of us try to live such a safe life. Some of us try to control everything in life and we base our life around what we can acquire, how much we can accumulate, how much we can amass. And what we forget is that life is not permanent as we know it. You and I are not a product of time. We're a product of eternity. God has plucked us out of eternity. He has positioned us in time and he's given us gifts and talents for the purpose of serving our generation. In fact, we are not going to be here forever. In the book of James, the writer writes to us and he says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city. Spend a year there, buy, sell, make a profit. Whereas you do not know what, you will, what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life, the scripture says? What is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. All of the stress, all of the anxiety, all of the worry, what's happening on the market, in the market this week? How much am I going to expand my house? Is my kid going to get a 4.0? You know who? All the stress that we have. The Bible says vapor. All of the stuff that we worry about and we think is so important, vapor. Am I going to find that right one, vapor? Can I extend my house? Am I going to buy somewhere new and get big, vapor? Oh no, my little car's got a scratch on it, vapor. I didn't quite, you know, am I really going to get into that college because it's going to make my whole life, vapor? Here a vapor, there a vapor, everywhere a vapor, vapor. It's a very important vapor. It's a very important vapor. It lasts about that long. That's what time is. That's what time is, that long. All the stress, all the anxiety. And God says, what are you going to do with the gifts that I've given you during that time? What are you going to do with the time that I've given you during that time? What are you going to do with the talents that I've given you during that time? I want you to be in this world, but not of it. I don't want you to have the same priorities as this world. I don't want you to base your life on just how much you can amass, how much you can accumulate, how much you can acquire, because there's a lot more important things. And life is but a vapor. It's a very important vapor because the decisions that you make will impact not only your eternity, but all the other people that are on the other side of your obedience, this side of eternity. For some reason, we've equated the blessed life with a safe life. You know, church, the purpose of life is not to arrive at death safely, because that's how a lot of us live. As long as I've got my nice little stuff and it's all really nice, I've got my 2.2 in the mortgage and my white picket fence, and now I'm going to fall into the coffin safely. It's all safe. I'm going in in one piece. The truth is that most Christians spend their life praying for signs and wonders and miracles and then avoid the kind of life and avoid any context where a miracle can happen. And God's saying, I'm calling you out of the boat. In this whole series of living boldly. God's saying, are you living the kind of life where I even need to turn up? 
Because most of the things that we pray for that we think are miracles, actually, if we just managed our lives better, would be fine. Most of us are not even living the kind of life where we need God to show up in a major way. See, I believe that God's looking for his church. He wants to take us to places we've never been by paths we didn't even know existed. Dr. David Livingston, the great missionary to Africa, when he went there, the missionary society that sent him to Africa wrote him a letter and said, Dr. Livingston, is there a path paved to where you are? If there is, we have many men that we want to send to help you. He wrote back and he said, if you will have men that will only come if a path has been paved, I don't want them. I want men who will come if there is no path at all. And God's looking for a church that says, I'm willing to take a risk. I'm not looking for safety. I'm not looking for predictability. Life is but a vapor. And what is God consumed about during that vapor? For God so loved the world, the scripture teaches us, that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, from heaven to earth to die on a cross and rise again from the dead. Not to make our lives safe. Safety is not the goal of Christianity. Freedom is. Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 says it's for freedom that Christ set us free. And yet so many of us look for a safe life and we end up living safe and caged and bound rather than free to step into the world that God has called us to step into. Many of us spend our life running away out of fear from the very world that God has called us to reach. And what we have to do is not fear the darkness of the world, but understand that the light of Christ lives on the inside of us. And God is sending us into our world. Jesus Christ came to seek and save that which was lost. We're not called just to make a career and make a living. No matter what occupation we have, no matter whether we're at school, we're a full-time homemaker, or we work in the corporate sector, First and foremost, we are followers of Christ that are called to bring light into dark places. Not to avoid those dark places, but to be the light of Christ in there. In Matthew chapter 5, the scripture tells us that we are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men. Why? That they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. God says, I need my church to be light in the midst of darkness, not to run away from the darkness and to create an artificial subculture and avoid the world that I've called you to reach. But I've asked you to step into the world and not be of it. Don't have the same value system as the world. Don't have the same priorities of the world. Don't have the same pursuits as the world, but be in it and bring light in the midst of darkness because we have a world that is dying. We have a world that is desperate for the church to step out of its safety zone. You know, we were in Africa and um, we were at a, a game park. It was amazing. We saw all these lions and tigers and, and they were wild and untamed and undomesticated. They were beautiful in the game park. And then we came home to Sydney and took our kids to the zoo. And I saw the same lions and the same tigers in a cage. And they were docile and they were domesticated and they were tamed. And I looked at my husband, I said, you know, this is exactly what the church is like. I said, we get saved and then we get caged by religiosity. We get caged by tradition and culture and we lose our whole personality and we get tame and we get domesticated and we think the goal of our Christianity is just that I'm nice, just that she's sweet and she's nice. As if Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth, died on a cross and rose again from the dead to make me nice, gag me with a spoon. He didn't come 
to make us nice. He came to make us dangerous to the kingdom of darkness so that we can make a difference in our generation, church. He came to make us more than nice. Tame and domesticated. You see those Christians, you know, before I was saved, man, I was the life of the party. I was wild. I was awesome. But now I'm a Christian. I'm a socially dysfunctional moron. I've had a lobotomy. I have no personality. I wear beige. I don't do anything. I don't go anywhere. I don't say anything. And I can only define my Christianity by what I no longer do. I used to be the life of the party. But now I don't do this and I don't do that. And I haven't got a clue what I should be doing, but I know what I don't do. <laughs> I'm like, Jesus is waiting for his church to arise. We have a world full of global injustice and poverty and pain. A world that is desperate for the church to understand that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. God hasn't called me during my vapour to hide from the world, but to understand that greater is the Jesus on the inside of me than any darkness on the outside of me. I don't need to fear the world, but I need to step into the world. And like Jesus who left the comfort of heaven, and the safety of heaven and stepped into a broken and a lost humanity. That's what the incarnation is. It's putting flesh and blood on the bones of faith. He stepped into a lost and a broken world. And he took the hand of broken people and took the hand of the Father and reconciled them through his cross. And he calls you and I to do the same thing, not to run from the world and create a little safe world, but to go in in the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit who empowers us to be witnesses, not to do witnessing, but to be witnesses in a lost and a broken world. God's consumed with the lost. If you look in the book of Luke chapter 15, you'll see one chapter, three parables about one subject. You won't see that anywhere else in the Bible. God's obsessed with the lost. He sent Jesus for the lost. And we, his church, ought to have the same heartbeat for what his heart beats for. And his heart beats for a lost and a broken world. He talks about a lost sheep. He talks about a lost coin. He talks about a lost son. He's teaching us, don't judge the lost. Don't condemn the lost. Don't point a finger at the lost, but love the lost. And let me explain to you why people end up lost. And it doesn't matter why they end up lost. Our job is to seek and save the lost. He talks about a lost sheep. I'm from Australia. We do a lot of sheep. If you're going to have lamb... Have it from Australia. And so what we have is sheep. And you can see you drive through a paddock and there's a whole lot of sheep. And then there's this one little sheep all by itself at the end of the day. The sheep didn't set out in the morning and go, gee, I want to get lost today. It was just preoccupied with eating the grass. Preoccupied. Stuck its head up at the end of the day and went, bah. That being interpreted means I'm lost. And so he was just lost. We've got a world that's preoccupied. They're trying to pay the bills. Trying to keep their kids off drugs try not to lose their house, just preoccupied. Not bad people, just preoccupied people. And God's saying, I want you to be in the midst of that darkness and seek and save that which is lost. The coin, the coin didn't get lost on its own. The woman was careless with the coin and it ended up lost. You know, we have a generation with whom many who have put over authority, influence makers, decision makers over their lives, have mismanaged and haven't been good stewards of what they should be teaching the next generation. And we have a generation that is lost morally, emotionally, spiritually. You know, I come from a background where people were careless with my life. I ended up lost not because necessarily I was bad. Of course, I was born into sin. 
But the fact is that people were careless with my life. So I ended up lost. I came from a background. I was born, you know, Sydney, Australia, second generation migrant Greek. When Before my big fat Greek wedding, when it was not cool to be Greek in Australia, I was very marginalized because of my ethnicity. In a culture that demeaned women, never ever taught that a woman could aspire to be anything other than just kind of a lean, mean breeding machine, really. I grew up in the poorest local government area in my state in government-assisted housing. And pretty much every week of my life, from the time I was three years old until the time I was 15, I was, had been abused by four men every week. And what that does with someone is it really messes with your whole sense of identity, your whole sense of purpose. I was a young woman full of shame. I was full of guilt. I was full of condemnation. I was full of bitterness. I was full of unforgiveness. I was full of so much hurt. I was lost. And people could have looked at my behavior and pointed a finger and been judgmental, but they didn't know what had happened in my life. And that's how I ended up lost. I didn't need to be judged. I needed to be loved. I needed someone to step into the darkness of my world and to illuminate that darkness with the love and the grace and the mercy and the life and the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ. I who was lost needed to be found. And we have a whole world that is lost that needs to be found. And because someone bothered to do that in my life, I who have been rescued now spend my life helping to rescue the victims of human trafficking around the world. And those of us that have been rescued have a responsibility to turn around with a hand of grace and extend that same grace that was given to us and the same mercy and the same love to a lost and a broken world. God hasn't called us to be consumed just with our world that we forget that he has called us to the world. Life is but a vapor. We don't have a lot of time to seek and save that which is lost. And perhaps like the son, there are those that end up lost because they were just miscalculated. <laughs> he wanted the father's money. He thought a life without the father would be better than a life with the father. And there's a whole lot of people in this generation that think a life without God would be better than a life with God. And they end up lost. And Jesus doesn't say we should sit down and pontificate about why somebody is lost or judge them or point a finger or think we are more exclusive. But he says, I want you to step out of your light into their darkness and illuminate their darkness with my love and grace and mercy to bring hope. If you've been rescued to rescue someone else, if you understand the God of justice to extend justice and grace to those around you, to not just forget the community into which I've placed you. I don't want the church just to do church on Sunday. I want the church to be the church 24 hours a day, seven days a week and change the world that is around us. So he sends us into darkness. That was the last commandment Jesus gave us. And you know what? We should make his last command our first priority. Go into all the world. Don't run away from the world. Don't hide from the world. Don't separate yourself from the very world that I have called you into. You know, when I was um, speaking a little while ago, my little, uh, she's now my, my five-year-old. She was three at the time, Sophia. She loves flashlights. And she wanted a, a new flashlight and she loves Barbie. And at the time, if you said to her, Sophia, do you have Jesus in your heart? She would say, no, mommy. Daddy said we're not allowed to have any boys. And so I have Barbie in my heart and Jesus in my stomach. So go figure her theology. That was kind of where she was at. And um, so 
I had been speaking and then I wanted to take it to Walmart because I know this is going to amuse you people here. But for an Australian, the number one tourist attraction in North America is Walmart because there is nowhere in Australia that you could go at one o'clock in the morning and buy breakfast cereal, underwear and a gun. It's fantastic. It's like it's... And so you get in and you get your little iPhone out and you Twitter to the world, I'm in Walmart. And all the Americans are like, so what? And all the Australians are, I'm so jealous. I wish I was there with you. Can you buy? I mean, it's anyway, it's a great tourist attraction. Doesn't take much to amuse us, obviously. And so, crikey, mate, she's a beauty. Anyway, so uh, what happened was, um, Sophia, I bought her this little flashlight, tiny little Barbie flashlight. And I was paying for my purchase. Sophia was at the end of the counter. And this is what she said. I'll never forget this. I can hear her saying it as I'm talking to you. She turned on the flashlight. And if you've ever been in Walmart, it's incredibly great mood lighting. It's just fluoro. And so she turns it on. And of course, she can't see the light because there's already so much light. So she yells this at me. She said, Mommy, can we please go and find some darkness? I froze. I turned around, literally, I went out of the mouth of babes. My three-year-old has a better revelation than most Christians that I know. She understands that there's only one place that light works the most effectively, and that's in the midst of darkness. That God didn't call the light to just have more light so that you no longer see the light. But he called us to walk into darkness. If I put Sophia in a basement without a flashlight, she will scream. She hates the dark. But if I give her a tiny little Barbie flashlight, she'll lock the basement door. She'll go looking for more darkness because she understands it's not the magnitude of the darkness around you. It's the power of the light on the inside of you to dispel the darkness around you, church. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. People say to me, don't you fear the Albanian mafia? Don't you fear the Russian mafia? I was in a meeting with the deputy director of global women's affairs at the State Department. She said, do you know there's a price in your head? It's very dangerous what you're doing. But you know what? At the end of the day, I understand that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, power and a sound mind. And greater is the Jesus on the inside of me than any trafficker on the outside of me. And you and I can dispel the darkness with the light and the light life and the hope and the mercy and the justice and the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We could do it, church. We could do it because of what Jesus Christ already accomplished 2,000 years ago. It's not because of anything that you and I are at all. It's about everything that He is. We're not serving some dead Savior. We're serving a resurrected Jesus Christ and the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives on the inside of you and me. There was a a missionary in the 19th century. It's an organization called the One Way Missionaries. And one of those missionaries, his name was A.W. Milne. And he was sent to a tribe of headhunters in the New Hebrides. Why they called them One Way Missionaries is because they would come to church and they would put all of their earthly possessions in a coffin They would bury the coffin and then they would give them a one-way ticket to wherever they were going to go. And it was a 99.9% guarantee that they would be martyred for their faith. There's many missionaries like that in the world today that go into the Middle East and into China and they're martyred for carrying the gospel of Jesus Christ. A.W. Milne went 
to this tribe of headhunters. They never killed him, but he lived amongst them for 35 years. He never came home. And when they buried him, this is the, what they wrote, um, the epitaph on his tombstone. I thought I would love this on mine. This is what the headhunters wrote. They wrote, when he came, there was no light. When he left, there was no darkness. My prayer would be of Mariner's church, that when they came, there wasn't any light. But because of that church, because that church just didn't gather in a building on a Sunday, but they were the church in the community Monday through Saturday, that because of them, darkness fled. Marriages were reconciled and restored. Homelessness, domestic violence, human trafficking, people not having access to clean, um, clean food and water, people dying of preventable diseases. A lot of that was eradicated because the church showed up. Because the church showed up. And this whole series is about you and I having the courage to boldly step out of our comfort zones, to understand that we who have been rescued have a responsibility to rescue, that we are blessed to be a blessing to a lost and a broken world. Why don't we just bow our heads and close our eyes? Father, I thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ that you would do what only you can do in this moment that you would take this one word that was spoken and you would divide it up in thousands of different ways so that it permeates the heart and life of every single human being under the sound of my voice right where they're at. And that you would speak to us all clearly about what steps of courage and faith and boldness we could each individually take to step out of the safety net of our own lives and into the darkness of somebody else's life and illuminate that darkness with your light, your love, your mercy, your hope, your salvation, your truth. I pray specifically that over the next week, you would set up divine encounters for every single person in Mariner's Church, in our workplace, in our communities, in our sporting places, in our schools, in our universities. And that we would be sensitive enough, courageous enough, and open enough to step into those situations and trust you to work through us to bring light into someone else's darkness. In Jesus' name I pray.